Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara Ye Sodavanta Bamunjantu Satang. Is the observance, the new moon night, and uh, it's May, and this, the end of this month of 2007 will be half over. Seems like it just began. I think old age, you know, time goes by very quickly, at least for me. Feel this sense of uh, I wake up or come to the puja, and I think, how many years have I been doing this? Waking up in the morning or coming to puja, <laughs> and it's always you know this of this uh, conventional realities of having a body and living in a uh, some kind of conventional organization, routine of monastic life, or the. Um, the realities of having a human body. And it wakes up and goes to sleep and it gets old and it gets uh, sicknesses and feels healthy, sickly and so forth. And so that they, you know, when you're uh, my age, then you've, you've been through this over and over again for, well, it'll be 73 years. Waking up, going to sleep, <laughs> eating food, feeling healthy or feeling sick. When I was a child, I was quite a sickly child. I was as uh, asthmatic, so I'd I'd um, turn blue, cyanotic, and this would scare the hell out of my mother. It was very, very difficult to breathe. And you, uh, you know, you're kind of trying to, to, to breathe and you feel you're, you're going to suffocate. And so, you know, when you're in, introduced to life is, with is such kind of problems, it's, when you're, of course, a baby or a small child, you don't understand it, but then in terms of Buddhist practice, you can put it in a context, you know, of, you know, the birth, the, the birth of the human body means the inevitable uh, aging process, or we have to experience illness, sickness, weakness, disease as part of human experience. I remember with loss or grief, I experienced, uh, you know, I think it was about nine years old or so when uh, my cat died. And I was very fond of this cat, very, uh, as you know, as a, I bonded, had an emotional bonding with this cat. And it, somebody poisoned it and it died and I, so I, I felt this incredible sense of grief. at the loss of the loved. And this, so this is, uh, you know, the 
in a Buddhist context, then we recognize this as a part of human experience. Loss of the loved, grief, uh, sickness, old age, death. And uh, so in the terms of reflection, we, even though these are quite obvious realities and facts, yet how many of you really, you know, uh, can, uh, you know, are aware of it and, and see it and, and can use your experience of age, of aging, of physical ailments, disease, loss of the love. And then the inevitable death that we all have to experience, physical death, at the end of the life of this particular form. The thing that attracted me to Buddhism in the beginning was I was about 21 years old when I came across Zen Buddhism in Japan. And uh, uh, people asked me, what is it? You know, what is it about Buddhism that particularly appealed to me or uh, made me so kind of interested, uh, reached me, touched my heart, or whatever way you want to put it? And it was because it did seem to be a way of investigating experience. Even at the age of 21, uh, you know, I was pretty much aware of. Uh, you know, that life didn't really have much meaning the way I was living it. Uh, just uh, being young and, and by that time I was very healthy and strong at my peak and uh, enjoying the sense pleasures and so forth. And yet uh, there wasn't much meaning to my life. You know, so something lacking. And also a lot of suffering, just uh, emotional immaturity, and not understanding uh, what life is about, what, the, what is it for, and what, what do we need to learn, what is the purpose, why was I born? So then Buddhism seemed to offer a, at least some way of, of investigating this experience of consciousness. Now it took me a long time to to really let go of my thinking process and the sense of myself. Uh, because, uh, you know, in the, the condition, I was conditioned through my social conditioning, education, cultural conditioning to, to think and to read and to acquire information and form opinions and views, develop the critical mind to discriminate uh, between right and wrong, good and bad, and heaven and hell, and, and have views and opinions, have ideals about how things should be, ideal of a, how a gov good government is, or a good economy, or what a man should be, or a woman should be, ideals of what uh, a good mother, or wife, or a good father, or husband, or all these were ideals that are instilled in you for part of a cultural uh, conditioning process that every culture instills in its members. And we acquire the values uh, of our particular cultural heritage. 
But when the Buddha pointed to the, the reality of dukkha or suffering as the first noble truth, even with the best conditions, uh, there still seems to be the condition, just conditioning, just good conditioning is not enough, not an end in itself. Because it always seemed to me in, in uh, being brought up in the kind of American values of uh, wanting things to be fair and equal because we're very idealistic uh, about how things should be. Democracy, fairness, equality. <coughs> Yet it seemed like that uh, in the realities of life this was this wasn't the way things actually are in schooling, in military life, in relationships. There's always something, something not right, or it shouldn't be, or inequalities, or a sense of unfairness. Then you wonder why, you know, and you believe in Brahms the Christian, why God, if he created us, why he didn't, why he created some some people with beautiful appearance, good health, uh, good parents, uh, good position, all the best, and others born and deformed and disadvantaged in all kinds of ways. Not fair, according to the American values. It's not fair, is it? <laughs> and especially if you've got only one lifetime to you know, and you got stuck with a really bad lot, you know, then <laughs> uh, one can feel quite angry <coughs> and indignant and resentful and jealous and all these emotions arise. Well, with a uh, Buddhist uh, perspective, you know, it's rather than coming from ideals, it's pointing to what is not an ideal at all. The first noble truth is not an ideal in any way whatsoever. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fact of life, isn't it? There is this dukkha, this suffering. No, it's, it's not how things should be, because on the level of idealism, there shouldn't be, we shouldn't have to suffer like this. It should be, we should be happy, healthy, positive, beautiful, fair and just, good, and not get old, and have sicknesses and weaknesses and disabilities. So, uh, the sense of fairness that I hear in, in the UK, I hear this a lot, you know, the, oftentimes, you know, it's not fair, things are not fair, is a common complaint that one hears. Now I found in my own experience of monasticism, you know, quite an interesting, when I first left the United States to go in the Peace Corps, I went to, I never really lived abroad before that. So, uh, you know, even in my experience in Japan, I was still in, you know, living within the, 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 the naval structure of America. So, going to live in Malaysia, I lived in, uh, was uh, signed to uh, Sabah, North Borneo, 1964. Went there to live, to teach English. <coughs> and there, of course, uh, 
it was, uh, it had just been, it had been a British colony just a few days before I arrived. It had been released from the tyranny of Britain and was uh, placed into the, into the Federation of Malaysia. <laughs> so the, I think it was the day after I arrived, or soon after I arrived, it was celebrating this, this independence. Sabah, in, in the island of Borneo, Sabah, Sarawak, Singapore was then a part of Malaysia. Singapore and Malaya. So this was what's called the Federation of Malaysia. And um, but there you still had the, the old colonial structures because the two years that I lived in Sabah was, uh, was still the, the colonial, the, the British uh, civil servants that were still there. They had to phase them out gradually, replace them with native uh, civil servants. So during the two years that I lived in Saba, they were mostly like British civil servants, like district officers and so forth. And so this was, and, and then you, you, and of course being American, you're, you're very critical of, a co even though America certainly has a record of colonialism, we're not, we don't admit it. Then we criticize the British and the French for uh, having co colonies. Mm -hmm. um, so in the American system, social conditioning, you never admit that you have, that you're an empire, that you have colonies. And you're critical of those that do. So then you have the ideal of egalitarianism. And uh, so I, even though I was just a, you know, adequately paid school teacher, I still, in that system there in, in Sabah, I had I uh, had to uh, have a a uh, a cleaning woman and a cook. Now I've never had servants before, and so uh, I didn't know what to do with these servants. So, like being American, where you're you're everybody's equal, you know, I treated them like just they were just ordinary other Americans, and it totally confused them. They didn't know where they were. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do, what was wrong, and I felt frustrated and, and uh, confused by, because the, the structure was different, the social structure was different. And the idealism of the American trying to be pals and buddies with your servants only confuses them when they're conditioned to work under a, a, a structure. Uh, a hierarchical structure. So then, uh, spending two years in this very beautiful place in Sabah, and then I went to live in Thailand and became a monk. And and then uh, in the living within the monastic structure uh, with Lung Po Cha, uh, I began to you know it gave me a chance to really get a feeling for structure, conventional structure, which I, you know, I never really understood it before because I came from the ideal level of equality and fairness and, and how things should be. And then in the uh, uh, monastic structure, of course, starting out as a, as a uh, you know, junior monk, 
So my first vasa as a bhikkhu was with Lung Po Cha. Of course, I was at the end of the line. And, and like we have here, you have duties to perform, serving, and so forth. That this was quite new to me. Uh, never was in a, even in the military. It was still based on the ideals of equality, even though there was nothing equal about it whatsoever. But there was never a consciousness, and never a really admission or an understanding of, hara- of the use of hierarchy. It was just kind of there, but n- and resented, but never consciously recognized or understood in any meaningful way. So in the in the military, I just learned to get along in the system to survive. You know how to survive. I'm a good survivor. You know, I can kind of adjust and get by with things. Uh, I'm clever enough to, you know, to know how to get through difficult situations without getting too badly damaged by them. Then in the monastic life, because of its reflectiveness, because the, the aim and the main emphasis of Ajahn Chah was reflecting on what you're actually feeling. And, uh, you know, beginning to really awaken and observe uh, the experience of consciousness itself, of the simplicity of consciousness. And I had been conscious all those years before I became a monk. I never was really aware of consciousness as such. Everything was interpreted from a very personal level and from this dualistic structure of right and wrong, good and bad, how things should be and then very critical and distressed when things weren't what they should be, both inside myself and externally, both inside and outside. So, you know, by the time I was 30, I, was, I developed a, a lot of despair and disillusionment with, with the world and with myself. Because by the age of 30, I'd lived long enough with my ideals to be disappointed, disillusioned by idealism. So I've become increasingly more cynical and bitter and uh, self-critical and a feeling of, of hopelessness about myself because the critical faculties were very much directed to, to what I saw I didn't like and didn't approve of in my own emotional habits or my own thoughts and reactions to life. Then, of course, be, being trained in the monastic system, because it was based on seniority. It wasn't based on class or anything like that, but uh, it's based on seniority, who, who, who ordained first. So it seemed, you know, it wasn't a matter of who's the best on a personal level, but it was merely a convenient structure to use, seniority. And so this was uh, the structure that we have here, this sense of who ordains first and therefore, so then we, you know, we can begin to disentangle our own personalities from the uh, position we're in. Because if we're identified with a position, with being senior, junior, monk or nun, anagarika, anagarika, lay, man, lay woman, and so forth. And these are still based on the dualistic structures of the cultural conditioning and convention. 
where the, the uh, mindfulness is the only possibility we have for transcending the dualistic structures. And, and it's not a, a denial or rejection of them, but it's putting them in perspective. So from my own experience over the years of meditating within this structure, uh, within this formal traditional structure, I've been able to see, see uh, you know, what conventional reality is and, and, what, and then for what personality is. See what my personality, how that operates within the structure of monastic life. And that which is aware then of the convention and of the structures and of the conditions, that's consciousness. But it's not, it's not personal. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to investigate, you know, the reality of consciousness no longer from personal perceptions, you know, of am I or am I not, uh, or claiming or disclaiming consciousness, but recognizing it. Because at this moment, we're all sitting in this, in this temple and we're all experiencing consciousness. And yet each one of us could be caught up in our own personal view of me sitting here. I'm the Ajahn Tamedo sitting here on the high seat giving this talk. Now when I, when, I, when I can't tell the difference, when I always experience life through my personality, through the conditions uh, that I attach to out of ignorance, then I do feel, you know, this dukkha. There's always something missing, something not quite right sense of dis-ease about things, even when life is going well, you know, and there's nothing, no particular problems or difficulties in the present, one can still feel a sense of, of discomfort or dis-ease because we know in the future all kinds of things could happen. You know, what's going to happen? My health. I'm getting old now. Maybe I'll draw, have a heart attack or a stroke. I like to read the obituaries in the newspapers, see how many people my age have, have passed away and dead. Because the death is ever more, you know, you're getting, you realize you're getting closer to that event. Even though we're on one rational level, we can say, we, well, any of us could die the next moment. You know, you could, any of you, even, the youngsters could suddenly have a heart attack or maybe one of the beams falls on your head or something. <laughs> Anything possible, you get hit by a car, uh, lightning. But we can, we can more or less assume these things are not particularly uh, imminent dangers uh, at right now. So, uh, you know, we don't particularly worry about it. When we are in situations of danger, then what happens? You know, then you find yourself, you know, you, you have to be mindful when, you're, when, you're, when your life is in danger. There's something kind of automatic about uh, self-preservation. But in ordinary life, to say daily life here at Amravati, there, you know, one doesn't feel 
that one's life is, is in danger. You know, there's no wild animals or dangerous things around, uh, you know, that, that are, you know, the immediate threat. We can always imagine terrorists in the bushes and whatnot. But uh, generally, I think most of us feel quite safe here. And then the routine, morning puja, evening puja, meal at 11.30, party uh, mocha on the, every fortnight, uh, chanting the anumotana, the blessings, and waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night, chanting in Pali, relating to the different members of the community, and uh, the routine uh, say before it gets extreme, and then there are always crises or problems that arise in in any condition uh, experience. So many of you have been here for very long, recognize that we go through very various crises or periods of peace and harmony, and then it changes and so forth. And yet the more we develop awareness, then our, we no longer depend on harmony as our refuge, communal harmony, but on our awareness. Because that is the real refuge. When we talk about refuge, the only refuge any of us ever have is through awareness, through awakened consciousness. Now, when you, what is awareness? What is mindfulness? It's, it's, oh, it's consciousness without ignorance and attachment. And that is recognized just by observing. Now, we're not looking for consciousness. You're got, trying to find consciousness. It's like the fish looking for water. You know, there's this joke about the fish, like, well, where's water? I hear that in order to survive, I have to, I have to find water. And goes around looking for it when, he's a, when the fish is in it. Same with consciousness. We're, we, we don't have to find it because you're already, you're already that, already. That's just, you've never lost it. But to recognize it without the attachments, the distortions, uh, of attachment to the condition, the conditioning process. So that's why I encourage you to investigate the, like the first three fetters, Sakya Ditti, Silabhata Bharamasa, Kita. Now these first three fetters are all about conditioning that, that you acquire after you're born. You're not born with Sakya Ditti, Sila Bhatta Brahmasa, Vichikita. This is all about cultural conditioning. The sense of yourself, individuality, personality, your ego. That you acquire after you're born. You're not born with an ego, a sense of self. Or you're, you're not born with a cultural uh, conditioning. You're not born, you're not thinking of yourself as English or Thai or anything. You get these perceptions later. <laughs> and, uh, 
And vichikita is always from thinking. You notice, like, when you stop thinking, you stop doubting. Now, that's an obvious fact. Like, when I first started meditating, as an obsessed thinker, my mind would, would not stop thinking. And I've told you about that first year when I was a Samanera in Nankai, where I had to sit with this rabid mind, this thinking mind, going, nah, 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 blah, 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 all the time. You know, and I didn't have any way to escape it. I gave up drinking, smoking. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was in this kuti, no television, no radio, no one to talk to, nobody could speak English, I couldn't speak Thai. I only had this little book, Word of the Buddha. I couldn't distract myself reading James Bond or anything like that. <laughs> or Bangkok Post or... <laughs> so I was stuck, in a, you know, quite by choice. You know, this was not some kind of punishment that, that I was forced into. It was a freely chosen experience. But I was looking for peace, you know, to have, I had this idea of once I get out of Bangkok and I get into a nice forest situation, a little cootie off in the woods, by myself, away from distracting people and difficult personalities, and then I'll really be, really be able to get my samadhi, because then I didn't really understand mindfulness at all. What I wanted was samadhi. I wanted to get in myself into a peaceful, tranquil state and stay there as long as I could. And so it seemed to me if I, if I just remove myself from every conflicting, difficult opportunity, then such as I found people always difficult. They stir you up, you know, you like them or don't like them, or they get irritated, frustrated. Uh, living in Bangkok, in noisy city, and so forth, teaching uh, students and uh, social life and other Buddhists, expatriate Buddhists, always with, with strong opinions about everything. The expatriate Buddhist community in Bangkok back in 1966, what a pain. <laughs> they were most opinionated, arrogant people. So I got away from that. I got out of Bangkok, ordained in Nong Kai, far away from everything. I was by myself, little kuti, little hut. And I remember the first night saying, oh, at last, peace at last. And for that night and the next day, I was bliss, I was full of bliss. And I said, oh, it's so nice just being by myself at last. I don't have to talk to anybody. Then they bring food every day. And uh, all I had to do was just sit and be quiet and calm down, get my samadhi. And so I was really looking forward to this and expecting a lot from it. But within three days, my mind was going absolutely crazy. It just wouldn't stop thinking. And uh, it just, everything started coming up into my consciousness. All memories from even way back when I was three or four years old. Uh, 
all the anger and resentment of 30 years, repressed emotions, and, and, and yet the conditions themselves, there's nothing wrong. You know, nobody was, there was nobody bothering me. There's nobody to blame for this. But when there's nothing to do, no distraction to absorb into, you're left by yourself without mindfulness, without awareness, without understanding, then the mind goes crazy. It just starts going on and on and on and on. So my first reaction was to try to control it, trying to stop the thinking. So I used to concentrate my mind on, on Apanasati, concentrate it, hold it there, and... Uh, and then I couldn't do very long, and suddenly, uh, then suddenly, all these thoughts, memories of a lifetime would would start coming into consciousness. And some of it was just rubbish, you know, silly nonsense, pop music from the forties, and then nonsense syllables would rise. And I mean, it wasn't even intelligent thinking. It just, some of it was just downright crazy. And, uh, uh, oh, I was expecting peace. And, and then the more I tried to control it and stop it and suppress it and resist it, the worse it became. I was just absolutely, you know, taut, like I was about ready to break. I could see why people go crazy in such situations, you know, because they they, they, they can't cope with it. But anyway, I, I did have uh, a kind of intuitive sense that if I just stayed long enough, it would uh, just to see what would happen. So I, instead of trying to control it, control it all and try to stop thinking out of willful, out of aversion, out of, I started reading this book about uh, Word of the Buddha for Noble Truths. This is this this book that I give uh, to you, most of you, is a is a kind of succinct form of the Tripitaka taken from the suttas, uh, put into a reasonable kind of small little pamphlet published in Sri Lanka. Uh, so it gives you the the the, the basic information. So the, the, the dukkha, or the first noble truth, became very apparent. And I, was, I began to see I wanted sukha, I wanted tranquility. My experience of meditation in Bangkok, where I practiced at Wat Mahathat, big monastery in, in the middle of Bangkok, I did at moments have very tranquil experiences. So I thought, all I need is the perfect, but then you, you can blame frustration everything on Bangkok. Because Wat Mahathat is right in the middle of, in a very noisy part of Bangkok, near the river. And so, you, you know, you can always blame the noises, people selling things on the street and things like that. So you, you, can, you can blame Bangkok. But then in Nong Kai, it's very quiet. <laughs> And brief moments, I could get, you know, moments of a kind of tranquil experience. But then the desire for it became so strong. 
such a crazy desire to, to have tranquility by suppressing uh, all this turmoil, this negativity. And of course, in that situation, I had no ability to suppress anymore or to blame. There was no, nobody to blame for it. So the, the kind of intuitive sense started working of just observing, being a witness to it. Because this, I was experiencing the first noble truth of suffering, of dukkha. Now this was, you know, this was suddenly I began to, to see this, this thinking, this mad mind, as, as, as an object, rather than always just trying to, you know, be uh, so strongly identified and so averse to it, trying to stop it, or actually getting caught up in, in believing in, uh, or getting frightened by some of the thoughts that would arise, or getting caught up in, in the memories of the past, because like many things would bring resentment, up a lot of resentment about being treated unfairly by life. In school and in the, in the military and, and so forth, there's always so much in anyone's life that's not fair and that, uh, you know, one resents. And so I could just sit there and be fully believe my resentment, you know, and get, get even more angry about something that happened maybe 10 years before. Had nothing to do with the situation I was in in the present. So reflecting on that, you know, beginning beginning to observe this feeling, and uh, then the koan of how do you stop thinking? And I really didn't think I'd ever stop thinking. You know, I just felt I was enslaved by this mad mind, mad thinking mind. And then, of course, it always takes you to wichikita. You're never quite sure what you're doing or whether you're right or wrong or, uh, you know, what, what you should do next. And you try to think and analyze and, and find the causes and uh, try to figure out why it wasn't fair that my uh, didn't get this or that when I was young or you know, trying to, to um, you know, carry resentments or, or then the grand gestures of, well, we must forgive everybody in life, you know, is being kind of grand about it all and let's not make a scene or make a mess of it at this point. And then, but then there's also this emotional stress of resentment and anger that is, that is suppressed when you're trying to be a good sport about everything when you're not really allowing your emotions to be conscious, you're merely kind of ignoring them by trying to live up to an ideal of being a good sport, being reasonable, being mature about it, and uh, being grand about life. So that's the ideal. But the, the reality of emotion is like this, you know. It, it can feel very petty, very mean, resentful, angry, self-centered, childish, very childish, a lot of the emotions. 
So then the, this judgment, the, the critical mind judges it. You say, this is childish. You know, a man your age, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have such emotions. Disgusting. 30 years old, you should know better than to wallow in this selfishness and self-pity. And so then the, the kind of what they call the inner tyrant or the jackal in nonviolent communication <laughs> is always, you know, passing judgment on how stupid these emotions are or childish or immature. But still, that doesn't resolve any of the issues, does it? How to deal with emotional stress. How to, is not through judging it or criticizing it or analyzing it, but recognizing it. And recognizing it, and when you start trying to figure out why I feel so angry and resentful, and trying to trace it back through, through thinking, it still leaves me with, it still leaves me in the cycle of thinking and self. So then the, the uh, kind of importance the Buddha placed on mindfulness began to be more apparent of awareness of feeling. Vedananupasana, awareness of emotional quality that I'm experiencing without you know, just a w attention to it, it feels like this. It's not a judgment, it's a, a willingness to feel suffering, pain, emotional, uh, whatever emotional quality that, that you're experiencing, a willingness to let it be what it is. And so this is, this is uh, what we call mindfulness. And in this mindfulness, the sati then is the, is the door, the gate to conscious, to recognizing, realizing consciousness without attachment. Awakened consciousness. Uh, it's very important to, to, uh, to recognize that consciousness is is what we're experiencing right now. And but it's not personal. As soon as you claim it personally, you're thinking again. You're thinking my consciousness, my feeling, uh, how I feel in my consciousness. That that's thinking again. That, those are words. Pronoun my possessive pronoun. Consciousness. But if we let go of the thinking process or the language itself to just pure awareness, then we, we can recognize consciousness before we create ourselves into it. And that's what, you know, in the six uh, elements, we have the earth, fire, water, and air, element, the four elements that are conditioned, about the conditioned realm. And then the conscious space and consciousness. So in, uh, in recognizing that space and consciousness is, 
you know, is, is not, we're not creating that. It's not, it's not, uh, it gives us perspective on the earth, fire, water, and air, on the other, on the four ele- other four elements. So, with mindfulness, we're actually, this is the Sati Sampachanya in Pali, uh, is that ability to, to just observe the four elements. The physical, the, the solid, or the fire element, or the w- uh, wind element, liquid element, both in the body and, and in the things around us that we experience through senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, through the mind. Because thoughts come and go. And feelings, emotions come and go according to condition. So when you're happy, the conditions for happiness are present. When, when you're sad, the conditions for sadness are present. And you know, you know, I feel happy today, and you feel I, sa- I feel sad today. And uh, be- and how do you know you're sad? Because there's a you know there's a consciousness of of sadness, the feeling of of sadness, of being down a bit, of loss or disappointment, or of happiness. Feel wonderful today, top of the world today. What is it that recognizes that I feel great today? And so then we, if we have no way of uh, reflecting on that, then we, we claim it always in terms that we, we want to be happy, feel, feel this way all the time, feel happy and life is wonderful is what we would like. And when we don't feel that way, then we would like to have that experience again. The desire to experience happiness. What we remember, previous happinesses that we remember. We would like to have that experience again. And then unhappiness or despair, depression, we don't want. There's something wrong with that. And, and then on a personal level, you know, from my cultural background, I'm conditioned to think that if you're a healthy person, you're happy. Happy and healthy. And, and then if you're a sick person, then you're, you know, you're something, you're, there's something wrong with you. And you shouldn't be sick and sad and despairing. So this is, this is the way the thinking mind works. Dualistic. If you've got happiness, you've got suffering, elation, depression. Then awareness is our ability to see these, these, you know, these conditions in perspective. And so like the Buddhist teachings are very skillful conventions for investigating experience. Like the, the itabhajyata, this uh, conditioned dependence on condition. You know, it's so obvious, isn't it, that, that happiness depends on condition. If, 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 if you're cold and sick and people don't love you and, and you have a bad stomach and so forth, the conditions for happiness are not present. 
That's amazing. <laughs> so you feel like this. You feel down, depressed, sick, and kind of fed up, and want to get out. You know, put me to sleep, or give me, a, give me a paracetamol, something to get rid of this feeling. You know, I don't like it. Or, you know, the drug scene, we got, or, or drinking uh, spirits, liquor and that, isn't it? You have momentary kind of release from maybe the suffering of, of being self-conscious or, or the misery of life or the despair, the, the negative mind states that, that uh, we tend to create in our ordinary lives when we take certain drugs or have a few drinks, we kind of forget it and let it go, and we feel uh, momentary kind of happiness or relief. Now, the, the purpose of the meditation, the whole aim of it, is to cultivate this awareness or develop it. Now, it doesn't mean that, that I develop it, you know, as me as a person. It's recognizing it and trusting it. So when I talk, and just learning to recognize pure consciousness without attachment is this way. Now that sounds, it's a simple enough explanation, but then you try to figure it out. How do you do that? And tell me what technique to use to, to be able to do that. <laughs> and then it becomes complicated again. So that's why, it's, uh, you know, the recognition is not, the more I kind of tell you what you should do to get it, you know, the more, you know, I'm, I'm actually reinforcing your Sakya Ditti again. So, so this I, I don't want to do anymore. I don't want to reinforce uh, this particular fetter but keep pointing to it, you know, keep, keep getting awakened to it, to, to no, begin to notice what Sakyaditi is, what a sense of self is, what feeling separate is. Now, like, I could feel very separate right now, if I want, sitting up here on this high seat. You know, Ajahn Sumato giving a Dhamma teaching in the, on, the, on the observance night. I could create myself into meditation teacher, giving you the, the straight scoop on how to get enlightened. Or I could, <laughs> I could claim all kinds of things. Or I could disclaim. Maybe I'm, I'm prone to modesty. You know. Well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not really anybody, and I don't want you to cling to me or cling to my words. Uh, and I could be very kind of humble and modest or arrogant and proud. But whatever way I manifest on that level, that's not what I'm pointing to. That's not, I'm not asking you to, to uh, grasp that. But what I try to do is to encourage this sense of awakening because it's, it's very simple, very ordinary. It's not a precious state of, you know, from a highly evolved, conscious, spiritually attained personality. 
No, how many of you think of yourselves as just begin? I'm just a beginner. I'm just, uh, you know, I haven't really practiced very much. I don't know that much about Buddhism and meditation, but, you know, I do my best. Still sucking ditty. Or I could say, I'm Ajahn Sumedha, 40 years, over 40 years of meditation practice with great teachers. And uh, <laughs> come across as, <laughs> you know, the great master. And all that creates this sense of division. You know, because I'm pointing to, you know, I'm, I'm talking about myself as a person and in a way that I'm expecting you to, to grasp that in some way. Reinforce the division of me and you. But when I'm, when I'm talking about consciousness now, this is where we're not separate. And, and this, uh, this is where you have, to, you know, this encouragement to trust in this, uh, this state of awareness, recognizing it, very simple, just this. And then to cultivate it, to integrate it into the daily life. So in, say, in my own experience, what I've done here at Amravati is integrate that, cultivate this, so that in the monastic form, in my position, in whatever, you know, the conditions that, that affect this being here, this consciousness, it's recognizing them in terms of what they really are, and they arise and cease. And discerning, you know, attachment to the sense of being somebody, and what non-attachment is like. I know what it's like, you know, when I start identifying with the conditions, with the body, with the position, with the convention. And when I attach to that, then I feel this way. I feel separate, I feel Somehow, the, 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 the thinking mind starts making judgments again. I go back into a, a kind of the, the, uh, the personality, t the tendency of my personality and emotional reaction. When, when there's non-attachment, then recognize, discerning non-attachment doesn't mean I don't have any thoughts anymore, but I, I'm no longer attaching to them. There's non-attachment. And it's not non-attachment because I'm averse to them, but it's because you see the, the suffering of being attached to your thinking process and just lost in, the, in that critical faculty endlessly, kind of wound, winding yourself up with your critical mind. So this is like awareness, mindfulness, allows us to see, uh, put the conditions into that perspective of aramana, the Pali word as an object, like thoughts, memories, emotional habits, are objects in consciousness. You, that which is aware of anger 
or greed or fear or desire. And that, you know, that is pure consciousness, but it's not personal. It has no, no boundary to it. If I create an attachment to it, you know, it's my consciousness, then I'm putting a, a condition in and experiencing this present moment from my personal view, from the sense of me as being somebody. But if I see the, the, the suffering or the dukkha from that, then I let go of that. So then I, I can be present, here and now, mindful. And resting in pure conscious awareness. And it's self-sustaining. I don't have to create it and hold on to it. It's natural. And so this is where in the in this Four Noble Truths teaching, this this particular um, structure the Buddha used. Uh, helps you to see that, you know, as a skillful means in order to, to um, really make it very clear, both intellectually now. It, it gives you skillful means, you know, on the, uh, on the conceptual level through this, this kind of poly tradition. It gives you vocabulary and a way of looking that is not uh, culturally, uh, uh, you know, isn't so bound into our culture or tainted with cultural assumptions. So that we're applying these, these tru noble truths to the reality of now rather than taking views about what Europeans, how European suffering as if it were different from Asian suffering or suffering of modern societies, different from the suffering of uh, the Buddha's uh, society in India 2,550 years ago. They didn't have computers. Their computers didn't break down. They didn't have viruses in them. They didn't have computer rage like we do. And that we've got all kinds of suffering that, you know, complicated forms of suffering that they no doubt weren't, didn't have at time in India 2,500 years ago. But basically, it's the causes are the same. Desire, ignorance and desire, heedlessness. The same thing. It's, uh, you know, modern, high-tech society or old-fashioned society, whether it's European or Asian. Consciousness has no doesn't belong to anybody. It's universal. So then in, in um, monastic life, it's learning to observe how you, you know, what, what goes on, you know, how you, you know, the people you're living with and the convention you're living in. Living here, Amaravati, or Chitters, or living in, in uh, England or Thailand or wherever, you know, it's, it's, you know, the conditions change. You know, they're different than that, but 
that awareness is a constant, is the refuge, what we cultivate, what we rest in. And with that awareness, then whatever we have to experience through the, through the senses, through the physical body, through our individual karma, you know, the, the way we are, the way one is, is what we call that karma. So, I, you know, you learn from the way you are, from your faults and weaknesses, your virtues, uh, you know, whatever. It's not, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no obstruction except ignorance. So, like disabilities, physical disabilities, or emotional traumas, or whatever, you know, if you begin to trust your awareness, then, uh, then these, these, these things are not obstructions. They're not fetters uh, to uh, liberation. It's only when we attach, identify with disabilities or personal views or emotional habits, that is the, that is the fetter that, that blinds us to reality. So this sense of reality you know, this is, this is real, uh, this consciousness, this awareness, conscious awareness, this is reality. I don't create it, but knowing it, there's a knowing, recognizing it. And that's in the, what the Third Noble Truth is all about. It's about recognizing or realizing. It's just this. All conditions cease, they change. But when, when conditions cease, there's still this, this consciousness operating. It's still here and now. It's timeless. It's non-personal. So in this, this way, uh, this uh, encourage you to, to uh, contemplate what I've said. You, if you want to argue about it, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't really want to, you know. But uh, this, what we need is encouragement, or maybe like modern terminology, empowerment. I'm empower empowering you. I'm not trying to convert you, or to believe me, it can become an Ajahn Sumato kind of addicts, you know, I don't, that's not what I want at all, but to encourage this awakened, to recognize and trust it, you know, and be, and cultivate it in, in the life that you find yourself living, you know, with the conditions that you find yourself in, physical, emotional, external, internal. So I offer this as a reflection.